Amen. What a blessing. Choirs, you make your way down. And musicians, thank you. Melissa, I think that expression of gratitude says it all. We're very grateful uh, for you sharing with us and for your amazing and wonderful parents. I thank God for them. And for you, Mr. Fred, what a blessing and encouragement you've been in my own life. And I thank God for you and for the rest of you in this room that have the gift of encouragement who utilize that gift and understand the importance of taking the time to be a blessing to those and be sensitive to the Spirit as He leads you. Because not all of us have that gift. And those of you that do, it is so very, very important for you to use it, what God's given you. So let's get our... Bibles out and open to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Uh, that will be the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy, the last chapter. You can find that on page 244 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We are in the third part of this trilogy. Two weeks ago, we looked at Riskology through the life of Joshua, and we saw that. God's way is not always the easy way, nor is it the safest way. And then last week we looked at Hopeology, the study of hope through the life of Gideon. And we saw through that study that God doesn't use the most qualified people to accomplish His tasks. And then today we will look at Graceology through the life of Moses. And what we hope to see today is that God's grace is more surprising and spectacular than we often think that it is. And so let's pray and ask God to help us today as we study His Word. Father, thank You for this amazing passage. And Lord, we're grateful for this perfect and errant Word that You've given us. And Lord, we pray that now You will take it and use it through the power of the Holy Spirit to impact our lives, that we might see clearly that which You'd have us to see. Father, we pray for ears to hear and hearts that would receive, that we might be changed by what you have to say to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, have been using these Old Testament narratives to try to communicate to you how easy it is for us uh, as uh, modern Christians in a Western context to manipulate the things that we know uh, in Scripture, the stories that we've learned growing up or the, the things that we've read in the Bible uh, to suit our purposes. We oftentimes, not necessarily intentionally, but we, we take passages of Scripture and we make them into what we want them to be or what we would suppose that they would be. And in doing so, what happens is there's a cumulative effect over time where we honestly begin to create a God that doesn't exist in Scripture. And it can be just little things, simple things that turn into bigger things. And so as we consider this issue of grace, I want us to first just think a little bit about ourselves and think about how we uh, relate to God, how we relate to the Scripture. I think um, if... I thought a lot about this this week. Uh, in Deuteronomy 34, we, we really have the, the, the epitaph of the great Moses. We, we consider what might be on 
the tombstone of the great leader of the Old Testament, if there were one, and it makes you think about what might be on your own tombstone or what might be the defining um, statement of your life. And it makes me think about my life and my ministry, and I think about how a message like today and last week and the week before so shaped by um, just my belief that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. That it truly is the most important thing about you. See, I believe in the church. I believe not just in the church, but the church that Jesus founded. Uh, the church that's a group of imperfect people who stand together in love and fellowship in His name. And they walk upon the journey that's before them. I think if we're not careful, we fall into the trap that many people have fallen into where we love to hear about people's transformation into perfection, that they, they have uh, left all of their troubles behind and all of the, the, the terrible temptations of sin and consequences of wrong decisions and behavior is all in their past and now in Christ everything is perfect and glorious and what we don't like to hear we don't like to hear about the journey the journey with the broken that's long and hard it makes us uncomfortable to not be what we think other people expect us to be we're so very conscious today of what other people think about what we're doing or what we're saying. It's, it's a strange thing. We, we live in a, in a digital world where we put forth this facade to the world around us that is really, it's not reality. I find it almost impossible to get on Facebook. It, it's, it's so troubling to my heart because I know you and yet I see things that it's just not real. It's just not real. And I see people crying for attention in the wrong ways. I see people working so hard to get other people to think a certain way about them. There's this spirit of perfectionism that invades our thinking. We, we want to be perfect. And some of us in this room wouldn't admit this, but we live as if we think we actually might be able to attain it We're, if we just keep working a little harder. Let me ask you a couple questions. You can just answer these in your head. The first question is, are you highly conscious and hypercritical of the mistakes in your life? When you make a mistake, how do you respond to that mistake? Do you spend time ruminating, mulling over and thinking about why things didn't turn out the way you planned them? 
Are you defensive towards criticism? Do you fear failure? Would you say this morning that you are certainly your harshest critic? Are you anxious in any situation that might give others the impression that you're not perfect? I think these questions, if we're honest with ourselves, they cause us to realize just how wrapped up in this idea of perfectionism and outward performance we are. And really, some of you right now might even be pushing back at me in your heart and thinking to yourself, well, now hold on a minute, Pastor. What, what's the alternative here? I mean, what, what are you suggesting this morning? That the goal is to wake up every morning in Christ and to be average? Due to that, that maybe it would do us all good to slack off a little bit more? No. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what is the goal? What's the finish line for you? What do you want to be on your tombstone? How about to know God and to be used by God? How about just simply... To live your life every day to know God and to be used by Him. I mean, if what we want to hear is the Lord say to you and me, well done, good and faithful servant, then why are we acting like and living like what we want to hear is well done, good and perfect servant, which He will say to no one because He's the only good and perfect servant. And really, at the core, perfectionism is anti-grace. Striving to do things in a perfect way is the most opposite grace lifestyle a person can possibly lead. You see, the Bible teaches that a Christian is to be an agent of grace, a dispenser of grace. But if you're striving for perfection, then you're not only robbing yourself of that opportunity, but those around you. Let me remind you with a couple passages of Scripture that kind of set, the, set our hearts in right order. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrates His love towards us in this one and very simple way. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of all of our failure, it was there that Christ came. But then what do we do with a passage like the last verse in Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And he says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. When you read that verse, when you look at that, what, what does that make you think of? 
do you stop and think to yourself, now how could the most grace-filled sermon that's ever been preached, a sermon that started out with blessing for the poor in spirit, for the brokenhearted, for the, for the hungry and the thirsty, I mean, the, that the whole sermon just breaks down all of our brokenness and the blessing of God upon those who understand who they rightly are, then why would Jesus make the statement, well, you should be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect? Is he calling you and me to a life of perfection? Is that the context of that passage of Scripture? Because that's the way I often hear it spoke about. And yet in reality, what Jesus is saying is that your perfection is not found in yourself. It never has been and it never will be. It's found in your heavenly Father who is found in you. And that the only way that you'll ever find perfection is through his perfection. It'll never be through yours. See, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Here we are, earthen vessels, you and me sitting in this room today, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, that's what it's all about. You see, I'm not saying that, that goodness doesn't matter I'm not saying that morality and righteousness are not important to God. I'm I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that they won't happen apart from God. They don't happen because you're striving for them. If we're striving for perfection, then I would just simply ask this question. Why? Why are you trying to be perfect? Why are you trying so hard to get people to think a certain way about you, what are you hoping to gain from it? What will it yield you if you are able to convince people of what you want to convince them or even convince yourself? Is there some delusion that we have arrived at that we needed grace for salvation? No one disputes that. The question for today is, what about in our daily lives? It's like we look back at this moment in time where the grace of God just fell upon us and He forgave us of all of our sin and we cast ourselves upon Him for salvation, but then somehow we pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and press on in our own strength. Like, The grace of God was what brought us to that moment of salvation, but on a daily basis, I don't need that because as a Christian, I'm going to be this new creation that's somehow going to be perfect. The bottom line question behind all of these statements that I'm making really is, am I okay You see, that's what I think we're asking. That's what I think we're we're saying when we're projecting this quest for perfection or this, this constant obsession with what other people think. Really, the question that's burning in your heart that's keeping you up late at night is, am I okay? Am I okay where I am? Am I okay who I am? 
Let me try to make it a little more clear. See, wrapped up in this idea of what other people are thinking, what I'm thinking, the, 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 the expectations that I've placed upon myself, that I project onto others, all of those things, really, the way it manifests itself on a, on a, a, a heart level is just scorekeeping. It's really just keeping score. Checking your score against other people's score. or Checking your score against your own expectations for yourself. And here's what happens. when you Usually when you start keeping score, you're going to fall into one of these three categories. Some people are tired. See, scorekeeping, it wears you out. And you, you, if you're tired, you're asking the question, well, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep failing? What I want to, I, I want to do good, but, it, but and I do good for a while, and then I fail again. And you're looking around at the people around you, and you're thinking, well, they, they don't seem to be failing, and they seem to be doing so great, but why can't I be doing great? What's wrong with me? You see, because about the time you start to feel okay about yourself, something happens and knocks your score back down below the mark again. And there you are, negative. And so you think to yourself, I just need to try harder. I just need to try harder. And so you can only go around that circle so many times before you just get flat worn out. You're just exhausted. You're tired of trying. And you just push your Bible aside. Every spiritual conversation is just grueling. Because you just think, oh, man. Some people are angry. They're usually been carrying a scorecard longer than the tired people. They're, they're now to the point where they're asking the question, well, what's wrong with God? Well, why would, why would God allow that to happen? It seems like all the effort that I've put in, it seems like all of the things that I've done, all of the, the, the service that I've provided, all of my faithfulness had earned me something better than what I've gotten. And why would, would God, who is sovereign and powerful above all things, allow this to be true in my life? And I'm past being tired. I'm, I'm just mad. I'm mad because things that are outside of my control, things I can't fix, things no matter how hard I work, they're not going to change. They just are. And I have to deal with them. And I don't like it. And it's making me angry because it just seems to me like it's unjust. And there's some people, they're not tired or angry, they're insecure. See, the question that they're asking is not what's wrong with me, not what's wrong with God, but they're saying, what's wrong with everyone else? Well, what's wrong with my kids? What's wrong with my spouse? What's wrong with the people that I work with? What's wrong with the people in my Sunday school class? What's, what's wrong with... Why, why can't they seem to, to do the things that I can do? I'm keeping score on everybody else. I'm keeping tabs on how they're doing because I'm insecure about my own scorecard. I'm so wrapped up in 
what my scorecard says, that I'm going to devote my time to making sure that other people can't mess it up. See, these are the people who find confidence in their scorecard. They don't want anything to blemish their card. And the way they keep it propped up is by keeping score on everybody else and pushing them down. And as long as they can keep everybody else pushed down, theirs is up. But if a whole bunch of people come up to where their scorecard is, well, then they're going to have to go higher. And they don't want to do that. And you can always tell these people because they give out their love. They dole their love and affection out based on merit. If what you do meets my approval, then I'll be good to you and I'll be loving to you. But if what you do doesn't, then I'll simply turn aside and hold my affection to myself or give it elsewhere. And so whether this morning you're, you're tired or you're angry or you're insecure, I just want you to understand that everyone who strives for perfection, everyone who keeps a scorecard loses. Everyone. You lose. You will always lose. Because it's anti-grace, it's anti-gospel, it simply will not work, it never has, it never will, and the Bible knows nothing of it. And I want to illustrate this this morning to us through the story of Moses. Now we've talked a lot about Moses, it seems like, in the last year, but we haven't had this conversation. And Moses is probably the greatest leader in the Old Testament, arguably. He certainly, the Bible has... Uh, as much to say about him as anyone, and he is uh, an extraordinary character in the sense that his story is so fascinating. I mean, it, here's a man who uh, is born an orphan, who is taken in uh, by a king's daughter and raised in the palace. It's such an unlikely scenario, and so the first 40 years of his life, he, he, he actually lives in the palace like a king, though he doesn't belong there. So you think, this guy's off to big things. And then at age 40, he commits cold-blooded murder. He kills a man in cold blood and flees into the wilderness. And he spends the next 40 years of his life in exile, totally banished from really the... the the kingdom that he knew and the lifestyle that he was accustomed to. and So we find him tending sheep in the desert of Midian. Then God shows up on the scene, which seems a little odd considering the fact that the man is at this time 80 years old and Moses meets God at a burning bush as an 80-year-old man certainly at the low point of his life, certainly convinced that, hey, on his scorecard, he's out of the game. Uh, he was looking pretty good, was probably pretty confident in how things were going and until that murder. And after that, that probably did him in, and so he was relegated to just live out the rest of his life in anonymity and just disappear into oblivion. But what that 
story teaches us is that God seems to love to use ordinary people. And really not just ordinary people, but unlikely people. People who have been wounded. People who are in touch with their brokenness. People who are scared. People who... People who, let's face it, probably you and I wouldn't choose. People whose lives have been crushed. People who have been through great difficulty. When you fail, when you fail big time, Whether it's one giant catastrophic event that breaks your heart, one giant catastrophic event that separates you from everything that you hoped one day might be, or whether it's just the culmination of a bunch of little mistakes along the way that finally just add up to more than you can bear, where you just throw your hands up in the air and go, God's not going to use me. He comes to this man, Moses, and he calls him to lead his people out of captivity. It's just amazing how Moses is so resistant, obviously. Now, who wouldn't be? But what happens next is what's really shocking. I mean, then the next 40 years of his life are spent leading people through the wilderness. I mean, it's a 40-year journey through the wilderness. And, and I've said this before. I believe that Moses had the hardest job of all the human people in the Bible. Only Jesus had it tougher than Moses. As hard as Paul had it, I'd rather be Paul than Moses. Maybe it's because I know what it's like to shepherd people through the wilderness. I don't know, but when I think about 40 years of what he went through, when I study through the book of Numbers, I just think, dear God, thank you, I'm not Moses. It makes me love you a lot. These were some hard-headed people. And there's a defining moment in his life where it seems that once again that everything was on the right track, everything was going good, everything was going to be fine. And Moses was God's man. And I mean, he had solidified himself as God's man. He was, no one doubted his success. No one doubted God's hand upon him. He was the man. And then in Numbers chapter 20, the people are grumbling yet again. They're thirsty this time. They want water. And here we go, Moses, you've led us out here to die, and we should have stayed where we were, and na, 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 we go. And and Moses just had all he can stand. And God says, Moses, go and speak to the rock, and it will yield the water that the people desire. And so Moses, in frustration, the Bible says, lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and all their animals drank. You've got a million plus people and all their animals drinking. Water's gushing like Niagara Falls. The grace of God. 
God told Moses to speak to the rock. Moses hit the rock. But the grace of God is a surprising thing. And water comes out and feeds a people who are grumbling and, and annoying and ungrateful and short-sighted. And Moses is angry and hot-tempered and disobedient. And yet the water comes. But then God says to Moses, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now that may just seem like a, a sentence to you, but that's because you're not Moses. You see, sometimes you read in the paper where there was a horrible car accident and A mom was driving her minivan down the interstate and there was a crash and an explosion and she survived but all of her children perished. And for a moment your heart sinks but you close the paper or turn off the TV and go on with your day. You don't know her. They weren't your kids. You didn't live that moment. Yes, it's sad but it's not you. Well, what I'm telling you this morning is, what if you had spent 20 years of your life leading these ungrateful, short-sighted people through the wilderness? You make one mistake and God says, oh, by the way, you're not going in the promised land. The whole point of everything that you've devoted your life to, all of this has been about getting to the promised land. The whole journey is about finally receiving the blessing of God. You mess up one time. You just slightly alter what God said and certainly certainly has a right to be aggravated certainly has a right to be frustrated I mean God that seems a little harsh you're not entering the promised land are you kidding me now suddenly Moses he understands how the mom feels sitting on the side of the interstate watching the coroner take her children away See, suddenly, Moses identifies with the great calamity that befalls us when all of a sudden God is anything but just and anything but kind, anything but understanding, anything but fair. There's just no way that one little mistake merits that punishment. And here's the thing. Don't put Moses on this giant pedestal he prayed three times that God would change his mind he asked God God I really want to go to the promised land nope he came back again God I really want to go nope the third time he came back God said don't bring this up to me again I believe God said that because he knew Moses was just going to keep doing that forever because more than anything, he wanted to go in the promised land. And so now what? What do you do now with your scorecards? What do you do now with your perfectionism? Where do you go from here? I mean, is this just the moment of exhaustion where you quit and throw in the towel and say, well, I'm done with this? Or is this the moment where you raise your fist up to God in anger and say, well, now I'm done with you? I mean, how do you respond to this 
moment. What happens when there you are sitting in an attorney's office signing papers to get divorced? Why? I never saw this day coming. I never thought I would be sitting in this place. God, surely you knew this? What do you do? You wake up one morning and realize, yesterday, in a moment of fear and uncertainty and panic, I had an abortion. I can't, I can't fix that. I can't change that. I can't go back. I can't make that undo itself. Well, what do you do? When you lose a, a loved one just unexpectedly, And in your heart, you want to receive that. But you see other families whose scorecard, in your opinion, doesn't meet up with your scorecard, but yet they seem to not have to endure what you endure. Moses understands that. I wonder what he's thinking. So what does he do? He could have just plopped down on the ground, said to the people, well, you're on your own. Folks, I'm out. I'm done. I quit. What's the point? I mean, why run the race if I'm not going to get to finish? God wants to do it another way. Let him do it his way. But it had been so easy to do. So easy. That's not what Moses did. So he he got up and he went back to God. He realized it was what it was and it wasn't going to change. And then God spoke to him as he always does. And God said, I want you to take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you. A man in whom is the Spirit. I want you to lay your hand on him. I want you to set him before Eleazar the priest, before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. Really? So first I find out that I'm not going in the promised land. I come back, and you say, now I want you to anoint the person who's going to take your place. And what does Moses do? He keeps rowing the boat that God's given him. He just keeps rowing the boat. He knows a little bit about where it's going, but even what he knows is not good. But all he can do is row. And so God makes sure to recognize Joshua the same way that Moses was recognized. 
He wanted, God made sure to do things in such a way that the people would know that Moses wasn't choosing Joshua, but that God was. So there's Moses. The people that he had loved, that he'd given his life for. All the things that he had seen and done, my goodness. From the moment he stood before Pharaoh and said, you're going to let my people go. To this moment, think of all that has happened. And it's just gone because I hit the rock. So we get to Deuteronomy 34. Here's what the Bible says. Moses at the end of his life, and he goes up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south, the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Does that seem a little cruel to you this morning? Why would you let somebody see what they're not going to be able to have? Why would you take him up on the mountain and show him everything that he's not going to get to experience? Seems a little harsh. I guess some people could make the case it's almost cruel punishment. There Moses is on top of this mountain. And God has him turn in this panoramic view, counterclockwise, 360 degrees around, and points out all the promised land, this beautiful land where these people are going to dwell and find home. What if all of this was an act of God's incredible mercy? What if God, taking Moses up that mountain, was not cruel, but it was God's grace and love putting his arm around Moses and walking him up that mountain. Now understand, here's a man who's 120 years old. He's on top of a peak that's 4,000 feet above sea level. I've climbed a lot of 4,000-foot mountains in my life. I've never passed a 120-year-old person. But Moses walked up that mountain on his own, in his own strength, his own power, 4,000 feet to the top. He gets there. God puts his arm around him, and he says, let me show you something. I want you to see this land. I want you to see the 
everything you've invested in, all the struggles that you've been through, were for something. I want you to see where the people are going to go, that they're going to make it, that it's all going to be successful, that these 40 years are going to pay off. And those families that you've come to love, they're going to be raising their children and grandchildren over there in those beautiful plains. That your life mattered, Moses. That it was for something. So for God to let Moses see the pastures that the flock that he had shepherded so faithfully would graze on? You think that was a a moment where Moses was bent out of shape because he wasn't going to get to go? Or do you think in that moment he was thinking, wow, look at that. I knew that this was all for something. I knew that following you would be worth it. Even when I couldn't see it, even when I couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. What Moses saw that day was the forerunner of things he couldn't imagine. King David would reign in that land. His son Solomon would build a temple that was unbelievable. That one day, God himself would walk into that land. He'd be baptized in that river. Moses couldn't understand that. But what he could understand was, yeah, God, I see now. See, we all have these moments when God gives us a glimpse of what we've been through and how the things that we didn't understand and the things that we still don't understand and the things that we wish were different, but how God put us in a position to minister to other people. How God would use those harsh moments to show us as an example to others that you're never going to be perfect in this life never but God doesn't use perfect people he uses broken people and so when you're broken you're useful and you see these moments when we have the clarity it usually happens at this big intersection in our life. This big calamity or discouragement. Moses was discouraged. He was told he was going to die and that he wasn't going to go in the promised land. 
He remembered that sin. I'm sure he was walking up that mountain the whole time thinking, man, why did I hit that rock? Why did I hit that rock? But in this moment on top of the mountain, what Moses realizes is that God is pouring his blessing onto him. And he's showing him. It's God's way of putting his arm around Moses and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And then Moses died. Just like that. Then look what the Bible says in verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. It's a good reminder for those of you in this room that whenever somebody dies, it's according to the word of the Lord. Verse 6, and he, capital H, he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. So let me get this straight. Moses climbs 4,000 feet. He gets to the top. God shows him the land. Pours his grace on him. Shows him that everything he lived for was worth it. That the people are going to make it. That the mission's going to be accomplished. That he, he played a vital role. Yes. And then he dies. And then God buries him. God does. No one else in the Bible is buried by God. No one else ever had this happen. But here God personally oversees the burial of Moses. If you know your Bible, you know there's a reference to this in the New Testament in the book of Jude, verse 9, where the Bible says that God put Michael, the archangel, in charge of watching over that gravesite, the body of Moses. It's fascinating. Moses, who could have just thrown the towel in, who could have just given up, who could have just quit, who could have just said, you know what, I don't get this, I don't understand this, this can't be grace, this can't be good. He could have done that. But he didn't. He kept rowing the boat. And look at what happened. God takes care of Moses. And Moses actually dies in the arms of his father. Hmm. This murderer. This man who's out tending sheep in the wilderness. This person whose dreams had completely died. Undoubtedly one who had either zero or close to zero self-confidence based on their first conversation at the bush. And God used this son-in-law sheep tender working in some hick town in the middle of nowhere 
to accomplish his plan and purpose. And just in that moment when the scorecard started tilting one way, calamity struck. The realization, wait a minute. I'm still flesh. I'm still broken. And the consequences hit like a ton of bricks. But Moses keeps rowing the boat. So then we have his epitaph recorded. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 35. But since then there's not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all of his servants, and in all his land, and by all the mighty power, and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel. Wow. That's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Two things that the Bible points out about Moses. He knew God. He knew God. And he was used by God. You know, I don't think if you talk to Moses after striking that rock, I don't think Moses would have ever uh, projected himself the same. I think Moses was fully in tune with his frailty after that moment. I think Moses understood completely that he was incomplete. And yet God took this man who made this mistake when life dealt him a card that seemed so harsh and unfair and unfathomably difficult. But a man who just kept rowing his boat. Yes, he, he, he didn't just, he was human. He asked God, God, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind. But once he realized that it was what it was, he really then began to experience the grace of God. And what he thought was so harsh turned out to be one of the tenderest moments in all of Scripture. So what does all this mean for you and for me? It means that we, like Moses, are never going to be perfect. And we're going to make mistakes. And life's going to deal us cards that seem like we can't take them. It's going to seem a little too harsh, too tough. There's going to be a temptation in our heart to say, God, I really think that I deserve and merit a little more than this. We're going to want to reach in our pocket and pull out our scorecard. We're going to want to play the I'm exhausted. We're going to want to play the I'm angry. But we're going to have to deal with the fact that we've really just become insecure. 
But what that is is really a misunderstanding of grace. It's missing the reality that grace is more than we think it is. Grace is not just a moment that brings us to salvation. Grace is a is a a power that sustains a believer every single day of our lives. And that God never, ever gives his children what they deserve. He never does. Never. Ever. He's always bestowing his grace on us. And just because we can't understand it, because we can't fathom it, because we can't seem to put our, our minds around it, doesn't change the reality of what it is. And so if you just keep rowing the boat, just keep rowing the boat. Be free in the frailty of who you are and the brokenness of who you are. Because we're all there. We're all there. And the scripture is there to remind us that we're going to have to admit, yes, Lord, I'm far from perfect. And at the same time, grace is more beautiful and more scandalous than I could ever imagine. So if there's hurt in your heart this morning, if there's hurt in your heart from the moment you struck the rock, hurt in your heart for the realization of carrying that scorecard around with you, monitoring your performance, understand it's anti-grace. Grace is resting in the reality that the only good thing in us is God and that the only place we're ever going to get where we're supposed to be is through Him. It's not going to be through us. And that I'm me and you're you. And that the cross stands before us this morning to say I gave perfection for you so lay down your striving and put your life in me when you strike the rock Just remember, there'll come a day when you'll stand before God and he'll put his arm around you and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Look at all that you accomplished in your life through me. So all that pain and that suffering, those things you didn't understand, it wasn't for nothing. I'm a good father. Everything's for something. Everything is for something. Now, 
enter into my kingdom where all that's behind us. You sit at my table, eat of my bounty, enjoy my presence forevermore. That's the study of grace. It's so much more than we often give it credit for. Let's stand and bow our heads.